The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle. Volume 1, The Bastille. Book 1, The Death of Louis XV. Chapter 1, Louis the Well-Beloved. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Peter Dan. Book 1, Chapter 1. Louis the Well-Beloved. President Hainaut, remarking on royal surnames of honour, how difficult it often is to ascertain not only why, but even when, they were conferred, takes occasion, in his sleek official way, to make a philosophical reflection. The surname of Bien-Name, well-beloved, says he, which Louis XV bears, will not leave posterity in the same doubt. This prince, in the year 1744, while hastening from one end of his kingdom to the other, and suspending his conquests in Flanders that he might fly to the assistance of Alsace, was arrested at Metz by a malady which threatened to cut short his days. At the news of this, Paris, all in terror, seemed a city taken by storm. The churches resounded with supplications and groans. The prayers of priests and people were every moment interrupted by their sobs and it was from an interest so dear and tender that this surname of Bien-Name fashioned itself, a title higher still than all the rest which this great prince has earned. So stands it written in lasting memorial of that year, 1744. Thirty other years have come and gone, and this great prince again lies sick. But in how altered circumstances now! Churches resound not with excessive groanings. Paris is stoically calm. Sobs interrupt no prayers, for indeed none are offered, except priests' litanies read or chanted at fixed money rate per hour, which are not liable to interruption. The shepherd of the people has been carried home from little Trianon, heavy of heart, and been put to bed in his own chateau of Versailles. The flock knows it and heeds it not. At most in the immeasurable tide of French speech, which ceases not day after day and only ebbs towards the short hours of night, may this of the royal sickness emerge from time to time as an article of news. Bets are doubtless depending, nay, some people express themselves loudly in the streets. But for the rest, on green field and steepled city, the May sun shines out, the May evening fades, and men ply their useful or useless business as if no Louis lay in danger. Dame du Barry indeed might pray if she had a talent for it. Duke d'Aguillon too, Marpeau and the Parlement Marpeau, these as they sit in their high places with France harnessed under their feet, know well on what basis they continue there. Look to it, d'Aguillon, sharply as thou didst from the mill of Saint-Cast, on Quiberon and the invading English. Thou covered, if not with glory, yet with meal. Fortune was ever accounted inconstant, and each dog has but his day. Forlorn enough languished Duke d'Aguillon, some years ago, covered, as we said, with meal, nay, with worse. For La Chalotte, the Breton parlementier, accused him not only of poltroonery and tyranny, but even of concussion, official plunder of money, which accusations it was easier to get quashed by backstairs influence than to get answered. 
neither could the thoughts or even the tongues of men be tied. Thus, under disastrous eclipse, had this grand nephew of the great Richelieu to glide about, unworshipped by the world. Resolute Choiseul, the abrupt, proud man, disdaining him, or even forgetting him. Little prospect but to glide into Gascony, to rebuild Chateau there, and die in glorious killing game. However, in the year 1770, a certain young soldier, Dumouriez by name, returning from Corsica, could see, with sorrow, at Compiègne, the old king of France, on foot, with doffed hat, in sight of his army, at the side of a magnificent phaeton, doing homage to the Dubari. Much lay therein. Thereby, for one thing, could Daguignon postpone the rebuilding of his chateau and rebuild his fortunes first. For stout Chauzet would discern in the Dubari nothing but a wonderfully dizzened scarlet woman, and go on his way as if she were not. Intolerable. The source of sighs, tears, of pettings and pouting, which would not end till France, La France, as she named her royal valet, finally mustered heart to see Chauzet, and with that quivering in the chin, tremblement du menton, natural in such case, faltered out a dismissal, dismissal of his last substantial man, but pacification of his scarlet woman. Thus Daiguillon rose again and culminated. And with him there rose Marpeau, the banisher of Parlement, who plants you a refractory president at Croix in Combray, on the top of steep rocks, inaccessible except by litters, there to consider himself. Likewise there rose Abbe Terray, dissolute financier, paying eightpence in the shilling, so that wits exclaim in some press at the playhouse, Where is Abbe Terray, that he might reduce us to two-thirds? And so have these individuals, verily, by black art, built them a Dom Daniel, or enchanted Dubaridom, call it an Armida place, where they dwell pleasantly. Chancellor Mappeo, playing blind man's buff with the scarlet enchantress, or gallantly presenting her with dwarf negroes, and a most Christian king has unspeakable peace within doors, whatever he may have without. My Chancellor is a scoundrel, but I cannot do without him. Beautiful Amida Palace, where the inmates live enchanted lives, lapped in soft music of adulation, waited on by the splendours of the world, which nevertheless hangs wondrously as by a single hair. Should the most Christian king die, or even get seriously afraid of dying? For alas, had not the fair haughty Chateauroux to fly, with wet cheeks and flaming heart, from that fever scene at Metz, driven forth by sour shavelings? She hardly returned when fever and shavelings were both swept into the background. Pompadour, too, when Damien wounded royalty slightly under the fifth rib, and our drive to Trianon went off futile in shrieks and madly shaken torches, had to pack and be in readiness, yet did not go, the wound not proving poisoned. For his majesty has religious faith, believes at least in a devil. And now a third peril, and who knows what may be in it, for the doctors look grave asked privily if his majesty had not the smallpox long ago, and doubt it may have been a false kind. Yes, Marpeo, pucker those sinister brows of thine, and peer out on it with thy malign rat eyes. It is a questionable case. 
Sure, only that man is mortal, that with the life of one mortal snaps irrevocably the wonderfulest talisman, and all Jubaridum rushes off with tumult into infinite space, and ye, as subterranean apparitions are wont, vanish utterly, leaving only a smell of sulphur. These, and what holds of these may pray, to Beelzebub, or whoever will hear them. But from the rest of France there comes, as was said, no prayer, or one of an opposite character, expressed openly in the street. Chateau or hotel, where an enlightened philosophism scrutinise many things, is not given to prayer. Neither are Ospark victories, Terray finances, nor say only 60,000 lettres de cachet, which is Marpeo's share, persuasives towards that. Oh, hey no, prayers? From a French smitten by black art with plague after plague, and lying now in shame and pain, with a harlot's foot on its neck, what prayers can come? Those lank scarecrows that prowl hunger-stricken through all highways and byways of French existence, will they pray? The dull millions that, in the workshop or furrow-field, grind foredone at the wheel of labour like halted gin-horses, if blind so much the quieter? Or they that in the Bicetra hospital, eight to a bed, lie waiting their manumission? Dim are those heads of theirs, dull stagnant those hearts. To them the great sovereign is known mainly as the great regrater of bread. If they hear of his sickness, they will answer with a dull, tant pis pour lui, or with the question, will he die? Yes, will he die? That is now for all France the grand question and hope, whereby alone the king's sickness has still some interest. End of Book One, Chapter One